How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty and TGIF because... Friday is the day we drop the jackpot in the On Point feed, and that is, of course, where On Point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings his unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magda. Okay, so we are on episode 12 here. What's caught your attention? What's the headline? Busgansekerheit. But, 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 that, what? <laughs> uh, that is a Dutch uh, coinage, meaning basically, literally, certainty of existence. It was introduced by a Dutch politician in their recent campaign. And by that, he meant, uh, you know, a sort of New Deal big state program that would give people good housing, good jobs, and so on. That's what he meant by... However, as I thought about that, I wondered about existence just literally as in life. And it rang a bell with columns and, and more particularly with a Pulitzer-worthy series on the uh, demography and geography of death in America in the Washington Post. It, it rang a bell with what I read there and in pieces in the New York Times and elsewhere and so I've tried to put it together in a sort of musing about the role uh-huh. uh, that the uh, uncertainty of existence is playing and may continue to play in American politics. Okay, so before we get to how you connect all that, let me just be clear. I'm not even going to try to pronounce this this Dutch word, so bravo to you for pulling it off. Um, I've had a catastrophic string of shows recently where I just couldn't pronounce names and phrases. Uh, But this certainty of existence in the Dutch context, right, were were they, you said they were talking about uh, uh, the the state programs which assist people? I just want to be clear on that. That's right. That's right. He didn't mean existence in the in the life or death sense. I'm saying, let's look at it that way and apply it to America. And when we do, well, you know, there's that line of Dylan Thomas's and death shall have no dominion. Increasingly, I think the evidence shows the United States is death's dominion. Oh, OK. We'll come back to the Dutch election a little later in the pod. But so start with your analysis. Where where does the, the failure begin? Well, let me start with a quotation from this Washington Post series. The United States is failing at a fundamental mission, keeping people alive. Uh, 
Among 18 peer countries, American life expectations rank dead last. Uh, according to a 2021 study, we are, quote, losing people in the most productive period of their lives. Uh, one in 25 kindergartners in America can't expect to see 40. Americans between 15 and 24 are twice as likely to die as those in France, Germany, Japan. Black Americans are four times more likely to die than residents of those uh, other countries. There are no less than uh, 13 counties in the country, eight in Kentucky alone, the rest in the South that saw falling life expectations. One million more Americans died each year than would have uh, died if mortality rates, if our mortality rates matched Europe. It's a, it's a, it's a place where lots of people are dying earlier than, than they ever expected. Mm. So that is definitely a condemnation overall. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people might first jump in and say, well, is this COVID, right? Because we definitely had a reversal in life expectancies because of, uh, you know, the million plus Americans who have died due to the pandemic. But if I understand you correctly, Jack, this has been going on some time, the divergence between the United States and, and peer nations, right? Oh, yes, okay. yes, uh, absolutely. It, well, in one particular, too, let's just break it down into, into, uh, into parts. Here's another quotation. The U.S. is failing its less educated citizens, an awful condemnation of what the country is today. That's from the Princeton economists Ann Case and Angus Deacon, uh, who point out the mortality gap uh, between people with college degrees and those without. It amounts to about eight years. And when you consider, that is, people with high school diplomas only, on average, live about eight years less than those with the college degree, which is a kind of, uh, you know, talisman. You're going to get more life if you get more, if you get one of those. Well, two-thirds of the country happen to be people without, without college degrees. And it can't be coincidental. It just can't be coincidental that Donald Trump captured two out of three white working-class voters uh, in the 2016 and nearly that in the 2020 election. That is certainly one way in which government is failing our most, some of our most vulnerable citizens, and they're responding uh, by, you know, by essentially going to a man who wants to blow up government. Mm, so this is, I think, Jack, where your analysis becomes even more fascinating, because we've long heard of that international divide that you started out with. But to see how wide the divide is in life and life expectancy within the United States and in how many different ways it cuts, right, across education, uh, across geography, across race, really, it, it tells us there's much we can do for each other already. But how do different, you know, state leaders look at this in terms of do they see it as a duty to pass and embrace policies that can aid in life expectancy? Well, here's Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio. He says, I think one of the most important functions of government is to preserve life. 
He's quoted in a, a, an article in the Post series called How Red State Politics Are Shaving Years Off American Lives. And the article uh, contrasts three cities bordering uh, Lake Erie, Ashtabula, Ohio, Erie, Pennsylvania, and Chautauqua, New York. Uh, Ohio is the, is the, is the dolorous case. Uh, it was once, 35 years ago, ranked with California for its general health and mortality rates. Now, one in five Ohioans die before 65, which ranks it about with Ecuador. Uh, and uh, the, uh, there's, there's a, they interview a local undertaker who said he's 52, and he said, I am getting tired of burying people younger than I am. Now, Governor DeWine has tried to change this situation by raising cigarette taxes and by requiring automobile, uh, you know, the, the, the state police to bring, pull people over for not wearing their seat belts. But he's been defeated by their very conservative and election proof uh, because of gerrymandering uh, Ohio Republican legislature. And indeed, the Speaker of the House of Ohio, he's had... Uh, He's had uh, uh, lung cancer, but he also gets lots of money from the cigarette uh, uh, industry. Therefore, tax, taxes on cigarettes in Ohio, one sixty a pack. In Pennsylvania, two sixty. In New York, at Chautauqua, five thirty-five a pack. The result, it's clear in this in the article that that fewer people in in Pennsylvania and in New York smoke. And people live longer in those places. And part of the reason is they, they, they make them pay on the nose for, uh, for cigarettes. And that money supports public education programs. Erie, Pennsylvania, it sort of forced down its smoking rate and consequently its premature mortality rate through a, a, a program paid for by that cigarette mm. tax in Ohio the, you know, it, it's death's dominion. So that is the kind of red, red state, blue state divide in death. Okay. Jack, I really want to come back to this in a second. But since you uh, quoted Mike DeWine, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, I just want to go back to that quickly, right? Because the quote that you said uh, that, that, uh, that he gave was, I think one of the most important functions of government is to preserve life. I have to ask... Was that in relation to the topic we're discussing or was it in relation to abortion, right? Because it was just this month that Ohio voters uh, voted to pass protections for abortion rights uh, into the Ohio state constitution. And that is something that Mike DeWine, Governor DeWine, DeWine was opposed to. So, you know, what, what does life mean in this context, Jack? He, I, I think he meant it both ways, but in this post series, he was quoted saying this about his efforts to raise the cigarette tax and his his sort of philosophy of why that's important. He says government should try to preserve life. Here's one way to do it. So he means life all the way up and down before uh, you know before birth, if that's such such a thing exists, and uh, and into uh, into life. Okay, thank you for that clarification because I was like, wait, 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 wait. People they use the word life in different contexts. And so I, I needed to uh, better understand that. Now, this 
policy correlation with life expectancy in the United States. There have been a lot of studies. You've read a bunch of them, I know, Jack, in the in the past several years about it. Uh, the first time it caught my attention was actually back in 2020. Uh, and there was a study um, published then. Let me, I've got it right here. It was published in the Millbank Quarterly, which is a journal about uh, population health and health policy. Lead author there was Professor Jennifer Montez. And they found, they looked at life expectancy between, you know, more conservative states and more liberal mm-hmm. states uh, prior from prior to 1980 to uh, 2020. And what was fascinating, according to their analysis, is that uh, life expectancy uh, in most U.S. states was roughly similar. But then mm-hmm. it takes this turn sharply beginning in 1980, where, according to the authors of the study, just like you said, it's the... Uh, uh, installment or enactment of more conservative uh, government policies in certain states that mm-hmm. they say drive this uh, this difference. Now, I've got a lot of questions for them. Hopefully one day we'll have them on the show. Um, but do you think that uh, that is now being realized by the people who are living in, under these different circumstances, even if they're just practically next door to each other? I mean, we were, we're in a, in a, time now where we're literally seeing our neighbors and our friends in other counties die. Yes. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you referenced the early 1980s. The mortality gap then between the richest and poorest countries was, uh, counties, I beg your pardon, was 9%. That is, people in poorer country, counties were 9% more likely to die. Uh, in 2000, that was 1980. In 2000, they were people in poor counties were 27 percent more likely to die than people in rich countries. Countries today, people in poor counties are 49 percent more likely to die than people in rich counties in the United mm. States. Increasingly, inequality. As the, as the Post puts it, is, is no longer about income. It is about life itself. Wow. You know, uh, that's very sobering, right? Because we're always focused on these narrow uh, uh, criteria like, like income. But in looking back at this 2020 study, Jack, not only do the researchers there say that they can explain the differentiation in state-by-state um, state life expectancy. But they, all, they also said, uh, this really caught my attention, that based on the parameters they looked at, tobacco, environment, tax, and labor policies, state-by-state, uh, state, these researchers back in 2020 say, well, if every state in the United States had adopted uh, you know, more, quote-unquote, liberal policies, that the upward trend in life expectancy for U.S. men and women could have been 25% steeper. I mean, they're basically saying that easily three years Mm. of life Mm. uh, Mm. being Mm. shaved off can be be attributed to that. So, I mean, tell me more about why we need to understand this right now, Jack, because, again, thinking back to what you said about income, the numbers tell us that because of the Biden administration's um, policies during COVID, especially, 
incomes are actually more or less better for a lot of Americans. So what are we missing here then in this picture? Well, indeed. Uh, let me just quote some some data points from Claudia Sam, who's the former economist with the Federal Reserve and a, who has a, a website. Uh, she says, the majority of Americans are better off financially now than they were before the pandemic. Full stop. Uh, millions more good jobs, bigger paychecks, even after inflation, the lowest debt burden on record, Cons uh, consumers spending back on strong pre-COVID uh, trends, historic increases in wealth, including at the bottom. She says, this is a huge accomplishment. Americans should celebrate it. Instead, <laughs> only 14% of Americans think they're better off under Biden. 70% thought his policies had either hurt the economy and had no in, in, impact, and even a third had said it had hurt the economy a lot. Even 26% of Democrats said the policies hadn't helped. So it's it's a terrible. The Democrats are going to pe the people and saying, "Look at our great record," but something else is is uh, is making the idea of prosperity. It's relativizing it and taking it down a peg for Americans. The Gallup poll, which does these polls of poor or life ratings, it says the number of Americans who say they are suffering is at a record high, mm. and I I submit that the, the that the picture we've been painting of this this geography of death you can go from virginia to louisiana to kansas and every county you go through will have a higher death rate than it did in 1980 everyone that that demography and geography of death is behind is is like a kind of threnody behind American politics, a dirge, uh, a, a, a dark refrain. And how it's affecting politics, we can't know. But I su submit it's, it's making the idea of prosperity a good deal less materialistic than, it, than the numbers reveal. And I even think, frankly, given the, you know, the, the picture of death, uh, that, that, that it's to do with Biden's popularity even. People see him and it, subconsciously it, they register mortality. I mm. mean, you can't help but think about it. And, uh, and uh, you know, by the way, I have to mention the, uh, the Dutch politician who, you know, was promising uh, certainty of existence to the Dutch people. Uh, he lost mm. to, quote, the Dutch Donald Trump. Geert Wilders, exactly. So, Jack, it seems like you're saying what's missing here perhaps is, well, first of all, is a full comprehension uh, amongst policymakers of this steady erosion of, uh, of life expectancy and the increase in mortality for Americans. I would posit that another thing that's missing specifically from how Democrats talk about this is the um, forcefulness of their language. And, and here's what I mean, Jack. Tell me what you think about this. Mm. Because you yeah. were right. Like they frequently, the Biden administration frequently talks about uh, gains made, puts it in terms of numbers. Mm -hmm. 
Well, remember one of the things, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to say it, <laughs> that Donald Trump used to talk about uh, when he when he ran first in 2015, 2016, even his uh, his inaugural speech. It wasn't just he talked about forgotten people, but you know, he talked about American carnage at that time, mm, right? Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. just the visceral way he used language really mm. reached to this oh. existential, literal Ooh. existential uh, truth that you're talking about here, Jack. I, I mean, feel free to disagree if you'd, if you'd like, but he connected with people on this fundamental way, which I'm not sure that even the famously empathetic Joe Biden is connecting with people. I think I think you're really on to something. I mean, it's a kind of ontological insecurity, a threat to the fundamental lived experience of being. That's what people in America have been undergoing even in 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 a rapidly increasing way. You know, among uh, non-college educated uh, uh, people, the, the life expectancy stopped advancing about 10 years ago. I mean, so it, it's a dramatic change. And and then there are the constants that, that you know, the, the chronic diseases that bring all that behind all this. And when you look at the statistics there, it takes your breath away. For example, in 1990, 12% of American adults were obese. Now it's 42%. Mm. Mm. What's it going to be in 20 years? Mm. And of course, everybody knows, you know, obesity is, the AMA calls it a disease. It's a terrible affliction that robs people of life. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Trump's whole politics of extremity, his desperate rhetoric, I, I, I quite agree with you. I think it connects right at a visceral level. Yeah. Because I think about how Joe Biden very eloquently says that he understands the pain that comes around with seeing an empty chair at the Thanksgiving table, right? Because mm-hmm. given his personal mm-hmm. losses. Oh, but yes. one would wonder, one wonders, you know, can he sort of transmute that into saying something like, you know, Americans, I wouldn't never bet against the United States, but I also know that right now you're worried that your children won't earn as much as you. You're worried mm. that you're not going to live as long as your parents did or that you're not going to have the supports that uh, help them through tough times. You know, something more that just like gets to the lived experience of Americans could potentially be effective. Um, but we'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, we will have to. Yeah. Well, so this is a really, really, really potent analysis, Jack, and it's one that I especially want to hear what your listeners think. So, folks, as we do every week, I'm going to remind you to go to your app store and get the On Point Vox Pop app if you don't already have it. And let us know what you think. Are you living in a place where you have seen life expectancy go down um, are you living in one of these counties that, that Jack uh, talked about? Or no matter where you are in the United States, a quote-unquote red state or blue state, what do you make of this trend, this long-term trend that we're seeing in the reduction of life expectancy, the differences from county to county, and the entire concept that the government has failed in its duty to provide a certainty of existence? So that is what we want to know. From all Jackpod listeners, do it through our On Point Vox Pop app. And Jack, as you know, we listen to every single message that comes in. And boy, did we ever get a flood from last two weeks ago from the podcast where you dared to utter the F word. So when we come back, we'll hear what folks, <laughs> we'll hear what folks had to say about that. 
Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We're back. And Jack, just a quick reminder of your analysis in the jackpot from a couple of weeks ago, because I don't want anyone to think that you're actually swearing through the entire thing. (laughs) But when you mentioned the F word, remind us, what were you referring to? I was referring to fascism, and I was uh, basing my uh, view, my, my view, I'm essentially was quoting two eminent historians of uh, uh, fascism and of the Holocaust who have recently said that reluctantly they have concluded that the word applies to Donald Trump. Mm. And we got what is thus far for the jackpot, a uh, record number of people who wanted to share their thoughts with you. Almost every single person who left us messages agreed with your analysis or their minds were convinced by the end of the episode. So here is a selection of the kind of messages that we got. It's past time to call what Trump is doing as fascism. Why? So that future generations of Americans are not adversely affected by the actions of one man. History tells us that fascism is one of our biggest problems. We haven't called it what it really is. We've allowed this to go way too far. Now here we are. I wonder, are we going to wait for the atrocities and injustices to happen only to define him with the benefit of hindsight and remorse and self-pity that we didn't do so sooner? I hope not. Trump always projects whatever he's doing onto others. I'm not corrupt, you're corrupt. I'm not fascist, you're fascist. I would hope, though, that when we do use it, that we're able to explain it and back it up with examples so that whoever it is that we're talking to, whoever our audience is, that they will understand and be more likely to be convinced of what we're trying to tell them. I would suggest avoid using culture war terms if at all possible. Speak to all the people, not just one niche. I don't know if it'll work because people, the politicians have been using these labels to identify their opponents without defining what about their opponent is fascist, racist, socialist, or whatever, so much so that the public's numb to it now. People need to listen and realize that if he becomes president again, the America that we know will no longer be. 
So that was Margaret in Texas, Susie in California, Lindsay in Texas, Brenda in North Carolina, Peg in Massachusetts, Will in Maryland, John in California, Howard in Indiana, and Laura in North Carolina. Just a few of the kinds of messages that we got, Jack. And we we cut them together that way because the pattern of thought and lament in all of the uh, the folks who sent us their uh, what they were thinking was so similar from acknowledgement to deep concern, frustration, but perhaps even just a tiny little bit of hope there in the end. I mean, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm shaken by it, really, that, that people just see immediately that this has to be true, that a word that drastic, uh, that freighted with the blood of history should apply to this buffoonish character. And yet, and yet, uh, we can't, you know, we can't miss who he is and who he's, he's, and who he is and what he's telling us he is. And I agree with the, with the caller who said, he, he, with Trump, everything is projection. He is a stranger to any psychic, psychological experience that isn't his own. He can't even imagine it. So he, he calls his enemies fascists, much likelier uh, to apply to him. You know, just the other day, Jonathan Carl, he's the. Uh, chief Washington correspondent for ABC News. He's written three books on Trump. He's out on a new one about what to expect from Trump to, just let me give you some of the headlines. This was in an interview he did with Bill Kristol yesterday. Uh, he, he says, quote, it'll be lawless from day one, a constitutional crisis with Congress from day one, derangement of U.S foreign policy from election day when Ukraine will realize that it is going to be surrendered to Russia and and maybe uh, Taiwan will recognize that it's going to be surrendered to China and God knows and you know troops are going to come out of Germany and Korea derangement of foreign policy and finally loyalists that's what Trump really learned loyalists people who just are loyal to him and his whim of iron loyalists will st- staff his administration and they will do whatever he says knowing that he can pardon them mm. for crimes if this isn't the entry wedge of fascism then we need to we need to change our, ter- mm. our terms mm. Well, we did have a couple of people who called uh, with some objections, actually, to uh, linking or or looping Trump in with fascism. Their objections actually had uh, different tones here. So first, let's hear from Scott Anderson in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, I'm calling from Wisconsin, which is going to be one of the most important swing states in 2024. I don't think that it's very helpful to call Trump a fascist. Uh, Trump himself uses the term fascist, Marxist, pigs, vermin for people that he doesn't like, that he says need to be rounded up in camps. And I think we just need to be more specific with his policies and how they're going to have effects on real people's lives. Jack, this is very interesting to me because I think he has a point that uh, even though there may be truth in the word, using it could backfire, especially in places like Wisconsin. Yes, and it, and you know, are you accusing people of voting for him of being fascist? That's mm-hmm. a tough. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of reasons for voting for somebody. It's 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 a it's the, the word applies to his political character and to the passions that he seeks to incite. Those sort of closely resemble the the pattern of fascists past. Mm. Okay, Jack, we've got one more here. This is Adam from Columbia, Illinois. 
I don't agree because let us first look at what the very definition of isolationist fascism is. I'm not even sure what I know what that means myself, although I do know that fascism is a form of government that controls both the economic and social aspects of a given population. Maybe Trumpism falls into that, but an extreme form of that would be North Korea. Okay, Jack, I I hear uh, Adam's point. And we actually touched on it in, in that uh, last mm-hmm. pod, that mm-hmm. what we recognize as fascism, that even given all that you've said about Trump, it doesn't, Trumpism may not fall into that recognizable category. That's true. And I was quoting Christopher Browning, uh, uh, the author of this classic book, Ordinary uh, Men, about uh, killers in the German and the sort of pioneers of the Holocaust. Uh, uh, And he writes, unlike previous fascist leaders with their cult of war, Trump still offers appeasement to dictators abroad. But he now promises something much closer to dictatorship at home. For me, what Trump is offering for his second term meets the threshold definition of fascism. The label I'd use to describe it, however, paradoxically, is isolationist uh, fascism. That fascism in the past meant geographic expansion, not with Trump. It means, you know, uh, uh, America first for fascism. We're going to work on it here and the rest of the world can, can look out for itself. Primo Levi said every age has its own has its own fascism. And, and, you know, others have said, you know, American fascist energies today, one scholar said, they're different from 1930s European fascism. But that does not mean they're not fascist. It means they're not European, and it is not the 1930s. Mm. Well, Jack... As always, you have given us so much to think about, both in your responses to listeners and in this week's pod about the certainty of existence. So I'm going to sit with this for a few days. And instead of asking you about what's in store for next week, I'll let you uh, surprise us as you always do. Okay, Jack? Thank you. I appreciate the lenity. (laughs) Well, that is Jack Beattie. He is, of course, On Point's news analyst. And perhaps more importantly, he is the heart and soul of the jackpot. Subscribe to On Point if you haven't already, because we do drop, drop the jackpot in the feed almost every single Friday. And it is well worth the listen. So thanks very much for sticking with us this week. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.